Okay, as is our practice, we're working our way through a book in the Bible. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 1, so I invite you to turn with me to chapter 1. Uh, It's on page 1414, if you're using one of our Bibles. And uh, we're at looking in, uh, we're taking two Sundays. We began last Sunday looking at verses 8 through 12. Excuse me, let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for um, your great grace in our lives. And we thank you, Father, for your um, son. We thank you for your spirit who took what your son did for us on the cross and put it into our lives. Help us now, O Lord, by that same spirit to understand your word. Speak to us, we pray. And uh, use your word right in spots where each of us need to hear from you. And we trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, let me read, beginning in verse 8. I'll read down to verse 12. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until this day. Now, you remember from last week that, that I said that this passage here, verse 8 through 12, it has, uh, has bookends on it. There's something that he says on either end that's the same. It resembles each other. And then in the center was the core of what he was saying. And that's where I spoke, I spoke uh, last week. That's where we started was in that middle part there in verse 9 and 10. It talks about the God who saved us and called us and what that calling is. That's what we talked about last week. And now I wanted to see that. So that the bookends would make more sense. There's something very interesting. Uh, look at verse 8. He talks, first, he, he says, therefore, do not be ashamed. So he speaks about this and, and mentions this issue about being ashamed. And then he says, he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. Now, if you go back down to verse 12, you see he mentions shame again. He says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. So we've got these bookends here. He mentions shame here and shame. But on the inside there, he mentions suffering. Go back to verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering. Well, he did the inverse of that in verse 12. You see, in verse 12, he says, For this reason I also suffer, but I'm not ashamed. So you see, on either, either side, you've got this issue of shame or being ashamed of the Lord. And then he's talking about suffering. And then on the inside of both of them is 
he actually mentions the word the gospel. Look again at verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. And then if you look at the verse at the end of verse 10, it says that all that Christ did was brought to light through the gospel, he says. And I was appointed a preacher of that. And that's why I suffer. And then but I'm not ashamed. And so you have on either end of this passage, this issue of the temptation, at least to be ashamed of Christ suffering and then there's the issue of the gospel and then it's like there's two lines on either side of this passage they're pointing to the middle and the middle is what we talked about last week i sure hope you were here yeah that 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 calling the way god works and calls us to himself but but these bookends now is what i want to look at this morning And I think that what we see in this passage is that Paul mentions two difficult realities um, that every Christian faces. So there's two difficult realities that each of us face. But he also talks about, he gives us then in verse 12, two reasons why we can be victorious in the midst of those realities. So that's what we're going to look at now. Two difficult realities and then two reasons why we can persevere and come out on top in the midst of those realities. First reality that's difficult is this. We will be tempted to be ashamed of our Lord and of his people. See there in verse 8, I've already read it a couple times, but the first part, let's read again. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And of course, in verse 12, then he says, I, I am not ashamed. Paul is, is languishing in some, uh, some dungeon, getting ready for his execution. He knows his time is coming to a close. Uh, people have deserted him, not only at that point in his life, but at other points in his life. When the things got tough, then some others uh, went away. But he's saying, I'm not ashamed. Even even though I'm here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the Lord. And and Timothy, you don't don't give in to the temptation to be ashamed. Why, Why is it, I put some thought into this, why is it that we are tempted at times to be ashamed of the gospel or to, 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 to shrink back from identifying ourselves with Christ and with Christ's people? You know, shame is, <clears throat> maybe it's a heightened form of being embarrassed. And we have feelings like maybe other people think we're foolish or disgrace even perhaps. Why are we tempted to feel that way about the one who has saved us? Well, turn, turn to John 15. Keep your finger here. We're going to come back. But John 15, beginning at verse 18. It's on page 1284. Several years ago, we looked at this in more detail, but I want to read it again uh, quickly for you. This is in Jesus's uh, what we call his upper room discourse, where he's speaking to them for the last time before he's going to be arrested that very night. In John fifteen eighteen, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. 
a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus is using interesting language there. And he's saying, you know, you're not of the world anymore. You're here. You're in the world, but you're not of the world in the sense of uh, I've called you out of the world. I've saved you. Something's happened in your life that hasn't happened in others. And, and he's saying that the world that we live in, the system that we live in, it, it, it actually hates us. The world system never fully accepts us. And, and um, we all know that being an outsider is always an uncomfortable feeling. I remember, um, I remember one time when one of my kids was, I was thinking about this as well. I think <clears throat> they're about four years old. So, hey, this is a Father's Day story. I <laughs> just thought of that. So one of my kids is about four years old. And uh, the details of what happened isn't important, but this is what the, the, the bottom line is this, that we were in a situation where I was there with the little four-year-old, and there were other like four or five-year-olds playing, and they didn't invite my child in. And I just remember, I can still, this is decades ago, and I can still remember the pain I felt watching my little one be excluded and my little one's thoughts and reactions as that little one felt excluded. And I hurt. Man, did I hurt. But there's nothing. You know, I couldn't jump and say, hey, play with my kid. You know, it doesn't work that way, does it? Instead, you help your kid deal with the realities of life. Being excluded is something that none of us likes to feel. And identifying ourselves with what is opposed by the world and not fully accepted and even ridiculed at chance at times increases our chances of being being left out. And so we feel that at times and then we're temp- the temptation then comes at that moment to, to be ashamed of the gospel, to be ashamed of our Lord, to not identify ourselves with him or with his people. You know, because Paul is saying, don't be ashamed of our Lord and don't be ashamed of me either, Timothy, please. And um, sometimes our brothers and sisters do stupid things. And it's, you know, we can be embarrassed about some of the things Christians say and do. But I, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about just, I did what's right. I said what's right. I'm being ridiculed. I'm thrown in a prison. Don't be ashamed of me. And, Paul, and Timothy, I'm sure, was not. In the same night that Jesus said this, he reached the point there where he prayed. Turn over to John 17. John 17, verse 11. It's often called the high priestly prayer. This is, this is his prayer before he's arrested to be brought to the cross. Uh, We studied this in detail and saw that he had five major requests that he was praying. Well, one of them we pick up in verse 11 says, I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves, meaning his disciples, are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them. I was keeping them in your name. 
which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have joy, my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is acknowledging, it's very clear that there's evil in the, in the world and those who are reconciled with God get connected with God. And so now we're in the world, but not of the world. And there's a tension there, which when I was younger, I thought that I would get to the point where I just figured out how to live with that tension being gone. And now I realize that it's a lifelong process. Amen. We don't ever get, I don't think there's an answer. We just, oh, that's it. (laughs) Every day we're living with this reality. I'm in the world, but not of the world. I'm to be, but I'm to be here. There's a purpose for me being here. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not asking that you take them out of the danger. I'm just asking that you guard them in the danger. And so the protection of God is on us. And we live here with that tension. The world we live in sends a message that they think lowly of the gospel. They can even ridicule it. And in some places in the world, more than you would probably want to admit or realize, people are being physically persecuted because of the message. So what do we do? Do we give in to the temptation to be ashamed of this message? This glorious message that we talked about last week. This, this way that God in his grace has reached out in Christ to reconcile us to himself. Do we give in to that temptation to be ashamed? Are you giving in to that temptation? Well, that's one of the difficult realities that everyone, every Christian faces. Now, second reality that we, uh, that we can face, and that is that we will suffer as we participate in the gospel. Turn back to 2 Timothy. We will suffer as we participate in the gospel. There in verse 8, again, he says in the middle of the verse, it says, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. And then he, he, he says that again in verse 12. You see in verse 12, for this reason, I also suffer these things. And what was the reason he's talking about is the reason was he was uh, he was one who was proclaiming the gospel. And so he suffered. Why? Why do we why is there suffering involved in the gospel and in participating in the gospel? Well, I got three reasons here and there's more, but just three for those of you who are taking notes. First. The fact that, that we are of what we've just said, the same reason that we can be tempted to be ashamed is a reason why at times we suffer. Because we're living in the world, but we're not really of the world. All that we said there in John 15 and 17, sometimes that creates actual suffering. Sometimes the world comes at, at us. And it waxes and wanes. And when you read history, you realize that it, it doesn't always stay the same. 
places in the world where you used to be um, uh, persecuted for being a Christian are now strongly Christian. Other places that used to be strongly Christian, they've, they've slipped and the culture's turning against the gospel. God is the one who sees the big picture and knows how it all fits together. In our, in our own culture, we see, I think, evidence that we're slipping in the wrong direction. And the gospel is, is not accepted and increasingly ridiculed. Will that turn to persecution? Actual persecution someday? Well, it could. And if it does, we suffer in that way. But even before that, we suffer in small ways. And that's very normal. That's what, that's what he's saying here in Second Timothy. Now, there's a second reason, though, that there's suffering, and, and I hope you catch this. The offense of the cross causes suffering. The offense of the cross will cause suffering. I want to read to you a little paragraph that John Stott wrote, because he said it better than I can. And I hope, li- listen as I read it to you. He said this, and I want you to follow this. What is it? about the cross of Christ that is offensive to people. You know, have you ever noticed that you can talk about God in a generic sense and, and, and people will tolerate it? And you can talk about morality sometimes and you can talk about a lot of stuff. But when you start talking about Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, that's, that's no, it's no longer a good conversation. What is it about the cross That is offensive. Listen to what John Stott says. What is the reason for this link between suffering and the gospel? What is there about the gospel which men hate and oppose and on account of which those who preach it have to suffer? Just this. God saves sinners in virtue of his own purpose and grace and not in virtue of their good works. That's what we just saw last week. It is the undeserved freeness of the gospel which offends. The natural or unregenerate man hates to have to admit the gravity of his sin and guilt, his complete helplessness to save himself, the indispensable necessity of God's grace and Christ's sin-bearing death to save him and therefore his inescapable indebtedness to the cross. This is what Paul meant by the stumbling block of the cross. Many preachers succumb to the temptation to mute it. They preach man in his merit instead of Christ in his cross and they substitute the one for the other quote, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, unquote. That's from Galatians 6. No man can preach Christ crucified with faithfulness and escape opposition, even persecution. Did you catch what he's saying there? This is so true. If you understand the cross, you understand that the cross is a statement that you are absolutely bankrupt before God. You have nothing to offer God to correct the the problem that you have with him. You can't add anything to the situation to make it better. It was that bad and that's why God sent his son. 
And that's why his son went to the cross. And there he, the sinless, pure one, stands in for the sinner. And God's justice, which is incensed because of you, the sinner, and me. And we, are, we, we owe a debt to God's justice. The just, God burns with that. It must be, it must be, that, that flame must go out for justice to be done. And the innocent one stands in willingly between the sinner, the guilty one, and God. And he takes God's, that fire from God. And he dies. But the justice of God is satisfied. The wrath of God is expended and completely gone on the one on the cross. Amen? Then he's buried. Then he rises again, showing that God the Father's accepted that payment. And all is right for those who will trust in Jesus Christ. The cross says you can't do anything. Someone else had to do it for you. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And people are offended by that. Because down deep in our heart, we want to think that we can do something. That we can somehow contribute something. That we can make it better. And that's, that's, that's sin right there. That attitude and that insistence to think that way. That in itself is sin. But bless God when your eyes are open and you see that no, I, I can't do anything. So I will trust Jesus Christ. And then forgiveness is given to us. Amen? But the offense of the cross, that's a, that's a phrase in Scripture. The stumbling block of the cross is real. And when we speak it, people are offended. We can even speak it gracefully and graciously and kindly. But the message itself offends. And then often we, the messengers, feel the heat coming back towards us. There's another reason, though, that we suffer And I want you to think of this. It's in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Our participation in the gospel will cause suffering to ourselves to one degree or another. In Colossians 1, 24, Paul the Apostle says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I've spoken about this verse in the past. We dwelt on it in detail when we were going through the book of Colossians. Let me read that again. He's saying that he suffers for the sake of the people who are going to believe in Christ. And he says at the end of the verse, in filling, I do my, my part, I do my share in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What in the world is he talking about, right? Because we know that there's nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. Amen? Is there something in his suffering on the cross that was left out? Did he suffer 98% and and we have to suffer 2% so that we can pay for our sins? No, it's 100%. Over and over in scripture, it says there's one sacrifice for all. And for all time, never to be done again. So what does Paul mean here in Colossians where he says, I do my share to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. What is lacking, Paul, in Christ's affliction? Well, I think the answer 
and you get it from the context and you get it from studying scripture is, is actually very straightforward. Christ accomplishes our salvation, but we now are given the task to announce his salvation. Amen? And in announcing it, we suffer in one way or the other. You see, he accomplished it, I announce it. He, he purchased it, I proclaim it. He made it happen, but I have to make it known. Amen? That wasn't loud enough. He, he made it happen, but we have to make it known. Amen? And when you go out, that takes, it costs. There, there, that's the right word. It costs us something to proclaim the gospel and to push the gospel and to keep moving the gospel to the people who need to hear it. It costs time. It costs money. It costs safety. It costs health. It costs energy. It costs sleep. It costs comfort. It costs hygiene sometimes. Did I mention money? It costs money. It costs all those things and more. And depending on the context you're in, it could cost you pain. There, there could, you could be persecuted for it. But, but whatever it is, it costs. We think about these hundred or so people in light in the park. This costs something to them. Amen? And, and, and for you who are going to eagerly sign up for three o'clock in the morning to pray, it costs you something to get up and to pray for an hour, right? It costs us to, to push the gospel forward. And I believe that's what Colossians 1.24 is talking about. That what's lacking in Christ's affliction? The, the energy and the cost that it takes to get Christ's gospel out farther. That's, that payment hasn't been made yet. That doesn't accomplish salvation, but it announces it, and it costs. It costs. But that's what we do because we're talking here about the gospel. Amen? Remember, the book ends, the temptation to be ashamed, suffering, and the next word in was gospel. That's why we, that's why we do this. That's why we, we, we pay the cost, whatever it is, is because... We're talking about the gospel and God in his purposes, he's taken us and wrapped us up in the gospel. <laughs> oh, man, my, my, it's his father's day, I guess. So I get to tell another kid's story. Don't worry, girls. It's about your brother. <laughs> my son, is, our son is right now. He's in pilot school for the Air Force, following his dream. He's having a great time. Early in pilot school, and he had had a private pilot's license before, so he had flown little things. So anyway, early on, he's past this now, but he called me one time and I said, how's it going? He says, dad, he says, I don't know if I'm flying the plane or if it's flying me. He says, this thing has got an engine in it that is so... It's like so much more powerful than anything I've ever been in. And it is. It's, this, it's, it's, a, it's a jet with a propeller on the front of it. It's a turboprop hyped up engine in this plane that's kind of a good size, but it's not that big. He says, it's like I'm like hanging on the back of a wild stallion, Dad. It's just like, <laughs> and he's loving it. 
you know what? That's, that's what the gospel is. You gotta understand it. The nature of the gospel. It's a jet engine. God, when he saved you, he strapped a jet engine on your back. And that engine is just, it's made to fly. It's made to fly. Can you imagine my son getting there on the runway? He's in there, fires up that baby. He's ready to go, you know, and he's watching the gauges. And then he just sits there for a while and then he taxis back. Are you kidding me? That thing is made to fly. And that's the gospel. The gospel is made to go. The very thrust of it, the message of it, isn't for us to take it and look at the gauges and make sure the gauges are right. The reason we're, we're, we're wrapped up in the gospel, the gospel is flying. It's a flying machine. You're going to go if you're in the gospel. And you don't always have to every, have everything figured out. <laughs> he says, you know, he, he's up there. He tells me a lot more that I don't tell my wife. I don't tell my wife everything that goes on up there. It's great stuff. Yeah. But, but he says, you know, he's flying up there. Everything's just about ready to go crazy. And there's a voice in his headset from the guy who's sitting behind him. The flight instructor. And he says two words. My plane. And the instructor takes the controls. And the son lets go. The instructor gets the, gets the plane back in shape. And he says, okay, your plane. And turns it back to him. My plane. Listen, sometimes I think we Christians, we've got a problem. We are sitting on top of a jet engine and we argue about where the gauges are supposed to be. And we sit and we think, I think, I think the needle shouldn't be there. It should be a little bit over there. I want to make sure this needle is down here where it's supposed to be. And this gauge is supposed to be here. And all the while, we're sitting on the pavement. My friend, the gospel is a jet engine that's meant to fly. So Fly. Take off. And just about the time you're going to crash, if you're listening to the Spirit, you hear a, vo- a, a voice that says, my plane. And he'll just take the controls back and make sure you're still living. My son's still alive. And they'll say, okay, now take it back again. I applaud those that, you know, some of the people who are stepping up to go to light in the park, they're nervous. You know, what are they going to do? I mean, they're going to interact with these people from South Allentown. And they're not quite sure. I mean, what happens if this happens? What happens to that? It, it doesn't matter. They're, 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 they're flying the plane. Amen? And then if you guys run into situations where you're really not sure what's going on, just make sure you're listening to the Spirit because you hear that voice, my plane, and he'll take over and it'll be fine. And then he'll say, now take it, your plane, and you just keep going. Amen? VBS is looking for more volunteers. You know, check out their thing. But it's, it's in addition to all the programs that we as a church do, there's you in your life, the people that you work with, the people in your neighborhood. We can't be afraid to step out and step into people's lives and serve them and then, and then, and then maybe get to share the gospel with them. And some of it is scary, but it doesn't matter because you've got a God strapped the jet engine on you and it is meant to fly. Amen. It's the gospel propels us. 
And as we do that, though, we're, as we're involved with this gospel, we get tempted at times to be ashamed. And we do suffer, and it costs us, but it's all okay. It's all okay. And let's, let's look now on why it's okay, because Paul talks about that in detail in verse 12. There's these two realities that are difficult, but there's also two reasons why we can face and conquer those two difficult realities. He says it in verse 12. Let me read it. He says, For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. And then he, he gives me two reasons now why. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. There's two reasons there. First reason is we actually know God. Amen? Why is it that I can face temptation to be ashamed and but, but work through it? Why is it that I can go ahead and willingly pay the cost that's involved in participating in the gospel? Why? Because I know God. I actually know God. You see there, again in verse 12, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. You see, there's a believing. There is a faith because I don't see God. And Jesus in the flesh is not here now. He's in heaven, but he's coming back. But, but I can't see him with my eyes. And so faith is involved. But what Paul is saying is that when I believed in Christ, I came to know. I know God through Jesus Christ. Look at First Peter chapter 1, page 1438. I want you to see a, a quick little um, transition here. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. So First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, verse 7, so that the genuineness of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. I love that in verse 8 where he says, you know, you've believed in Christ. And what's happened in the verses there before that, he's saying, and trials, difficulties have come into your life. But the difficulties have proved to you the genuineness of your own faith as well as proving it to people around you. So the trials make it sure that your faith is really the real thing. But, it's, it, but in the midst of it, though, he then gets to love. Do you see that in verse 8? And though you have not seen him, you love him. You see, we know God it's not, God is not just an idea, he is a person, and I know him, and I love him. I am involved in a love relationship with Almighty God. I hope you are too. Some people ask, you know, do you believe in God? Why, why do they ask the question that way? Why do people ask that question? Do you believe in God? 
Well, it's because God is an idea to them. And they're wondering if I've come to any conclusions about this idea. But God is not an idea to me. It, he's a, he and I have a relation. It's a relationship to me. Amen? That's what Paul's saying. I can face a shame. I can face suffering because I know him. I actually know God. I have a relationship with him. Somebody asking me, do you believe in God? That's like asking me, do you believe in your mother? Do you believe in your mother? What do you mean do I believe in my mother? I know my mother. Right? Do you believe he exists? That's maybe what they're asking. Do you believe in God? They, they often mean, well, do you believe that God exists? But you see, Paul, Paul is way beyond that. He's way beyond that question. He's saying, I know whom I have believed. And you and I, we can conquer our temptation to be ashamed. And we can endure suffering because we know him. Amen? And it's not an accident that there in First Peter, verses 6 to 9, before it gets to the place about, and so I, I love him, it's speaking about trials. It's the difficulties in life and the trials in life that drive us closer to God and, and refine our, our, our selfish and, and small motivations. And it rubs all that off of us. And we're focused then on God. And we know him and we get to know him to the point where he doesn't even have to do what I want him to do in my life. I love him. I love him and I know him. Amen. Well, back to second Timothy chapter one, verse 12. The second reason, the second reason why we can face and conquer shame and, and suffering. And I'm going to say it that this way, that God is actually committed to me. First reason is that we actually know God. The second reason is God actually is committed to us. Now, how do I get that from verse 12? Well, here's something really interesting. You see there in verse 12, if you read in our version, it says, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, if you're reading another version, English translation, maybe even the English Standard Version, if you have that version, it says, I know whom I believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what he has entrusted to me until that day. Did you hear the difference? It's exactly the opposite. <laughs> Anytime you read different versions in the English, in the Bible, and they say things like that, you know automatically, you already know, okay, there's a little bit of trouble down in the original language. The Greek, they're having trouble figuring out how to say something. And so when I saw that, I said, what? What is it? Is it what God entrusts to me or is it what I'm entrusting to him? <clears throat> this is what it says in the Greek. It says, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard my deposit until that day. That's what it actually says. God is able to guard my deposit until that day. Well, a deposit is something that person A has entrusted to person B. And then that's why they're getting into this trouble. Well, who who entrusted it to who? 
And some guys think, oh, it's what God has entrusted to Paul. And others say, no, it's what Paul has entrusted to God. That's, that's the problem. If they had just said, God is able to guard my deposit until that day, then, then we would just be left to where I, I just had to take several minutes to get us all. To the question, what does he mean by my deposit? This is what I think it is. God, in Paul's case entrusted into into Paul the gospel and the task he called him to be an apostle so all that that involved God God gives that deposit to Paul and Paul acts on that and lives that his life and now he's facing death and he takes his whole life and all that he did with what God gave him and he's he's given it back to God and he and he's saying God is able to guard all of this which came from him and now is going back to him. Amen? He guards it all and he's able to guard it all. It's on God. It's not on me. I, had, I, I sweated. I cried. I suffered. I exerted myself. But in the end, it's God's hand on all of that. He's in charge and I just entrust him with my whole life and all that I did with what he gave me. And God is able to guard it all and keep it to the last day. And so I'm not ashamed and I'm willing to suffer. Because, because he's committed to me. He's committed to his purposes. And he's made me a part of his purposes. Amen? Clear as mud. And so the answer is, it's both. Amen? You see, it's what God's entrusted me. It's, it's interesting. One, one commentator said it this way. He says, all that God put in Paul's hands, he put there, but he also kept his hand on it. I like that. All that God has given you, he's given you, but he, he's, he keeps his hand on it too and guides you through the difficulties of life and the trials. And, and we all, we take what God's given us, the opportunities, the gifts that he's given us, and then we, we, and then we have the gospel And we try to live the gospel and let that jet engine take us wherever it's going to take us. And we do all that we can with our life. And we get near the end of our life and we give it all back to God. And we just say, I am so grateful, God, that you are committed to me. Amen. That you've had your hand on all of this. Because as the years go by, I recognize how frail I am, how weak I am, how confused I can get, how easily I'll quit. How distracted I can get. But through all of that, Lord, you kept your hand on what you get put into my life. And you've guided me to the end. And it's all in your hands. And I thank you and I praise you. Amen. I believe that's what's being said here. He's committed to his purposes. And he's made you a part of those purposes. And so you can suffer for him. And you can... Face the temptation to be ashamed of him, to move past it, because he's got his hand on me. And so, in light of all this, we need to just rest in him. Amen? Rest in him. Foster that relationship that we have with him. And then go wherever that jet engine carries us. Amen? And when we're just about ready to crash, 
If we're listening, he'll just say, my plane, let go, let him write the plane. And he'll say, now you're a plane and you just keep flying and you just keep flying wherever God takes you. And then when we get right to the end, you'll look up to him and say, Lord, you are committed to your purposes in me. And it's all been under your care. And I just entrust it into your, your hands. And the big picture and the end game and the, the last way it's all going to work out. How my life fits into all this grand scheme. You've got that, Lord. I can just rest in you. I don't have to figure it out. I just fly wherever you point me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank and praise you. I felt inadequate this morning in expressing it, but I trust that your spirit would take your word and these thoughts and make it helpful to your people. We want to rest in you, O Lord. We want to serve you. We want to do more than just sit and look at the gauges in the cockpit. We want to fire that up and fly, trusting you to right the ship when we get it turned upside down or sideways. And Lord, we want to serve you. It's the gospel. It's you calling people to yourself like we looked at last week. It's the power of God unto salvation. Father, use us, we pray. Use us right here in the Lehigh Valley. Use us with the people we work with, with our neighbors. Forgive us, O Lord, for our giving in to the temptation to be ashamed of you and of your people. Cleanse us from that, O Lord, and help us now today moving forward to let you take us where you want to take us and use us in the way you want to use us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.